Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Habibis, three game developers drinking good Arab tea. I'm your host for this week, Osama Darius. And I'm Rami Ismail. All right, folks, what have you played this week? I don't know. I um, <laughs> I, I mean, this is not going to be very exciting. Uh, I played Mass Effect, uh, which we talked about for literally 45 minutes or 30 minutes last week. Uh, I finished the first one. Which Rami, was, you need to uh, tell us that you haven't finished three games in a week. We're very disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> Those are short you know, games, man. <laughs> I, I honestly tried, but Mass Effect 1 is, it truly is a bit of a slog, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. I spend... I spent like a good 20 hours of my week driving around uh, what is basically just, you know, uh, train matrixes uh, in the Marco, <laughs> trying to get up very steep hills and cursing at the screen, uh, which obviously last week it was okay to curse. This week uh, we're back to our normal non-cursing episodes, uh, which means I can't, I can't fully express how much I didn't like the Marco segments. Yeah. Um, but the, the the thing about Mass Effect is it still holds up. Um, it holds up in that way that the things that were clever about the game are still clever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the things that were bad about the game are worse now. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, like it, it's just time. Time made us see how much better those things could be. But I think we we've discussed this before as well. It's like it, the first game was was clearly just an experiment. Mm-hmm. Like they didn't know what they were making. They didn't know whether it was going to work. They knew that they were starting from sort of like their knowledge from Dragon Age, yeah. presumably, yeah. Uh, but that they were going to do a sci-fi opera epic shooter game. Like this is a studio with no experience in in shooters, as far as I know. Yeah. Um, and it, it kind of makes me think of that time Bungie originally thought that Destiny would be a, a fantasy game. Right, that would be as big of a, a, a hop for a studio like Bungie that has done shooters for such a long time. I mean, they've done Myth, I think, back in the days. But they were mostly a shooter studio, and for them to go fantasy would have been really hard. Uh, the same way to going sci-fi must have been really, really hard for uh, for Bioware. For but Yeah, for Mass Effect. But you could they, you could see a little bit of that fantasy DNA even in like the alien races and the like. I think mm-hmm. it, it gave it a very interesting flavor. Um, right. I, I also played a little bit of, of Mass Effect. Um, not, I didn't finish the first one like you did. I, I, I guess I don't play for. <laughs> I don't have as much time to play in a week as you do, or I don't know, whatever. But worst time management. Uh, but uh, the first week I played the, the Legendary Edition, I did the whole uh, Citadel part. Uh, the second week I fought the first boss. Uh, I don't know if these count as as spoilers because they're extremely vague, and if you haven't played the game, right. you have no idea what I'm talking about. So I think it's fine. Uh, and now I'm I'm starting in that second sequence, even though it's like you know it's, it's not exactly chronological. You could do it in any order, right. but like th- like I'm pretty much playing it. I told myself I was going to play it differently than the last time, and I've pretty much made every decision I exactly. Didn't. I didn't change anything. <laughs> so the far. only thing the only thing that has changed is my romance because in the first one it's really hard to get the the, the romanceable characters to back off from you, so it's kind mm-hmm. of a coin flip as to who you end up with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't want to end up with either of them, <laughs> uh, but I, I it, it didn't work this time, so. Uh, I ended up uh, I ended up in a romance, but I think that the thing that's clever about Mass Effect and that you know now with because the last time I played this I wasn't a game developer and sure I had an interest in game design but I, I hadn't quite looked at games and narrative structure and, and and gameplay structure. I think the thing that's clever about Mass Effect One is the way it folds its narrative structure. Mm-hmm. I think it's really cleverly done where you have your pretty straightforward linear opening sequence. And then the game sort of like opens up with um, three main missions that you can play in any order. The order in which you play those missions affects minor things about the narrative in those missions, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't have big meaningful changes in the outcome of those missions. Then after two of those, you get a a sort of like um, a block mission, like the mission that sort of folds the narrative back together. Mm And then after that, you have a, a, a final narrative mission that sort of like pushes you towards the exit, right? So you do this, um, you do this uh, intro, fold out, fold in, and forward. But the fold out, fold in part, you can do that in any order. And also, you don't actually have to complete it to continue, um, 
which makes it feel like you have tremendous freedom. Everything feels sort of natural. The the side quests appear and disappear based on which of the main quests you've done. Uh, so at any given point, stuff is happening. The narrative is moving forward. Uh, things are evolving. Your understanding of the situation grows. They've written sort of um, they've written sort of like a narrative, sort of like an explanation of how the narrative evolves for each of the orders you can do the narrative in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in every way, it feels logical, right? Um, and you can see that copied in Mass Effect 2, and you can see that copied in, in Mass Effect 3 again. But I think after how they did that in Mass Effect 1, you kind of see that that specific story type, um, the way they've done that, you see it explode across games uh, to the point where you even see it in, like, God of War, which the, the latest God of War used a very similar, like, open up, open back down, open up, open back down um, sort of system. They just did it more than once. And I think that's really cool. I mean, I, I'm sure there were games before Mass Effect that had played with it. You you would assume something like Deus Ex has, had also played with, you know, sort of like figuring things out and, uh, and you know, doing things. But those games were still meaningfully linear mm-hmm. in how you progress through the mission structure. Mass Effect, I, I can't remember a game before that that had really pulled that off with that type of um, story, with that type of, of uh, play. Have you played Arcanum? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. my God. So, so Arcanum is, I believe, a game, I, I'm pretty sure it came out before Mass Effect. I'd be shocked if it didn't. It was, it yeah, yeah, no, it did. That, that must have been early 2000s. Yeah, it must have been. Uh, Arcanum, I believe, is a game that had a very similar structure. It's, it's, a, it's a type of game I don't think will ever be made again. basically uh because it was incredibly open-ended to the point that um the first time i played the game i completely didn't see what was special about it and was very disappointed and then the second time i played the game i thought i was playing a completely different game so i'm not gonna spend too much time talking about arcanum but it's like on topic because um it it had similar narrative structure but in arcanum the choice of character you made at the beginning um and what stats you rolled changed your your experience exponentially like really in a huge way uh the first time i picked a typical like warrior type character um, and put very little uh, points in charm and, and intelligence. And because of that, I had almost no dialogue options. All my dialogue options were like grunts. And nobody joined my party, to the point that I didn't even know it was possible for, for characters to join your party. And right. everyone picked a fight with me all the time. And then the second time I played, I was like, you know what, I'm going to try like something different, because people are saying this game is like incredible, and I, I just don't see it. So I, I put no stats in anything offensive, and I put everything in charisma and intelligence. And I had a party of six people, some of which were bosses that I fought in my first run. Like, there were right. people that I would like walk up, say the wrong thing, they'd shoot at me, I'd have to fight them back. Now they're joining me, and it, it was elaborate. And... They had these, uh, like the, 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 the those missions that, you, that collapsed the narrative that you're talking about. The right. way that they were resolved are completely different depending on which type of character you have. Sometimes uh, a, a character that, that follows you unlocks dialogue options that allows you just to convince the people to let you through. Uh, right. Other times you could fool them. Other times you had to fight them. That was super interesting. So I, I, I feel like well, you know some studios dabbled with it before. Mass Effect basically made it mass market. Right. Yeah, and I think I think that's probably the best way to look at it. Like, yeah, from what I from what I remember, and I'm not quite sure if this is right, but I think Arcanum was either an inspiration or made by some of the people um, that were also involved in Neverwinter Nights. Yes, I believe so. And Neverwinter Nights was obviously a Bioware title. Yeah. Uh, so the, the 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 sort of like growth is there. I think what they really what they nailed with Mass Effect was sort of like still figuring out how to put a really strong three act structure into the game, yeah. Um, which I felt with, um, personally, and I know some people are going to disagree with me, but I, I felt that Neverwinter Nights never quite captured that sense, uh, that feeling of the, of like a strong three-act structure. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of felt like, here's a bunch of missions, here's a bunch of things you can do, go do these things. And Mass Effect really, for me, for the first time, felt like, okay, like you have, you have that full freedom to do what you want, even though in, in many ways it's far more constricted. Than a Neverwinter Nights or or an Arcanum, uh, this one felt freer. Um, maybe I'm just also like I'm very into space. It's <laughs> interesting to note that um, you know, like as you guys are mentioning the the growth, 
into into like what Mass Effect ended up being. It's interesting to note like how the studio uh, going like through Baldur's Gate and Neverwinter's Night also worked on Star Wars mm-hmm. uh, for quite some time. So like they've managed to nail down the space opera kind of feel, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and like a lot of like the RPG kind of systems. And I think at some point they were like, what if we like make our own Star Wars kind of game right. that ended up becoming Mass Effect? Like the the lore building, the 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 different species, how every one of those species have those very distinct uh, statistics. It's like you know clearly made out of like a dungeon master that really understands Star Wars and space right. operas of the like that decided to make their own. Absolutely, you, you can see that within the DNA of Mass Effect, which is I think is fascinating, and I think why it probably remains one of the strongest worlds in video games is because of. Um, there's a lot of that that happened behind the scene and it's years of growth for that studio um, to yeah. come out with this kind of um, a product at the end of it. Yeah. Absolutely. It, it feels like something that was uh, brewing in the minds of people before they actual started production. It just feels that deep. Whether that's true or not, or whether it's just like their experience mounting from working in other games, that's what it feels like. It, you know what? There's a difference between when you tell someone, okay, come up with a sci-fi, we're starting working on production, like we're starting production now. And if, if someone's been thinking about it for a long time and like uh, drawing all the lines and connections, like there's a, the, the, the outcome, the end result feels different. It's like uh, Nolan's uh, movies, uh, like Inception, mm-hmm. for example, where you can you can feel that he's been giving it a lot of thought because of all the symbolism that the, the, the right. that's like deep into it. It's not something he they didn't just ask for a script by the end of the week. Clearly, no, yeah, we, we spoke so, about this in a podcast uh, before. Like uh, uh, the the output or like a game or any artistic uh, piece of work is ultimately um, the collection of the creator's experiences. Right. So whether those experiences is like, you know, things you've done in your life or things that um, your own personal experience or like, you know, uh, games that you've built before. And we spoke, uh, I think at the time we spoke about how developers that worked on Gears of War, for example, their DNA ended up showing up in one of their games. So, like, um, I think I I find that very interesting always to like as we play the games to look at the creators and the kind of games they built before and you kind of see how that um, experience kind of builds on one on top of the other until you you get to understand the product that you're looking at. My, my favorite, my favorite for that is with indies. Like you can, like you grab in a game and you can usually tell by now with the travel I've done and going around the world, I can usually tell if I know the indie which indie it is, but more importantly, which which country they're from or what culture they live in. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Because it turns out culture also leaves a pretty big thing, fingerprint on how games uh, are made, and they're yeah. like. If a game has a very specific mechanic or identity, I can usually track back where it's probably from, yeah. Just yeah. from like the 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 way it's built or the way it plays or the way a certain jump feels. And like, oh yeah, that's the jump from, you know, uh, that's the jump that they used in in the Popen class. So probably uh, North, uh, Scandinavia or West Europe, yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's like it's wild how you can draw that. I really wish I could write that sort of stuff down, but it's all <laughs> gut feelings. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, but there are essays. I've read essays about the similar topics. Like I remember, this was even a long time ago, but I remember in college I read an essay about how uh, a lot of Japanese animations uh, dealt with a giant, uh, like dangerous force that comes from outer space uh, that wants to destroy Tokyo right after World War II. And that that right. kind of story was like not existent in Japanese folklore before, but they had like a huge monumental historic event that shaped many of the stories going forward. That makes right. sense. And like, you know, they, they, they treat it very differently than any other um, culture. Like they, 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 right. they don't, no other culture has that similar story. So it makes, it, it makes perfect sense. And there's been writings on it too. But uh, I think a lot of people then try to map that to narrative. But I'm, I think, I guess my 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 thesis is that it's it applies to everything, right? It yeah. applies to art. It applies to game design, which we normally see as sort of like abstract and then globalized. Good um, but they're not. They they're also very local in many yeah. ways. And the way we think about design is localized, which, um, you know, what Fauzi was saying about uh, Kotor, about Knights of the Old Republic. Uh, shows that that's very true, right? Like in a studio, there's a design culture and that design culture is localized and that gets expressed through the creators and it gets emphasized in those creators as they work there. And then when they leave and they go somewhere else, they take a little bit of that DNA with them. 
to other projects. And it ends yeah. up showing like in, in work that's going on be, uh, behind that. I remember in Japan, like I had right. a lot of friends that worked um, old school in Namco Bandai. And uh, we had, a, we had a, like a very interesting conversation that night. We had also people from Sega uh, about like, you know, the rise of 3D fighters, for example. So like... Um, mm-hmm. Virtual Fighter was amongst the first that started to uh, do that that specific type of 3D animation in fighting games. And mm-hmm. um, the creators, uh, some of the key team members of that game, left Sega and joined Namco. And that's how Tekken came to be. Nice. And, we were, and we were talking about like, you know, how like, you know, the, the, those two series are now vastly different, but still like there's a lot of uh, kind of uh, kinhood between those yes. two games, because there's a lot of that shared experience kind of migrated from one place to the other. And because no, the like, you know, exact same thing happened with Street Fighter and the, the series that later became King of Fighters, where some of the people exactly. who worked on Street Fighter 2, they went on to, to, to make uh, Art of Fighting and Fatal Fury, and those two games became King of Fighters later. That's incredible. I was about to say that. So, like, like the, it's sort of like amongst the reason why, like, you know, fighting games in uh, in Japan, for example, uh, were way more advanced towards us in the West is because fighting games that came out in the West were inspired by those games that came out at first. But uh, yes. still, from a design point of view, they had to make a lot of decisions either by themselves or to get inspired by their own mistakes or to just, you know, take an entirely different trajectory and create yeah, right. their own. Whereas, like, um, there's the creators that made Street Fighter, they, they stumbled into a bunch of things being the pioneers in that particular um, direction of design then making all these mistakes then you know some of them move to another team they'll go like I want to make things differently than what I made them in Street Fighter but I still got to take all the learnings I had from Street Fighter with me in building this new game and then you get stuff like Fatal Fury like King of Fighters like stuff like that Um, like the combo uh, systems work so differently you can feel the difference uh, when you're talking about games like Virtual Fighter or or uh, Tekken, and you could feel mm-hmm. how similar they are when you're talking about Street Fighter and, and King of Fighters, so like it's really interesting that the, you can draw a line and say, okay, this is where the inspiration is if you know the games intimately enough. Exactly. We, we, that's we make gameplay games we're talking about. Yeah, exactly. When we're making games generally, you end up like, you know, in a room with a bunch of game makers. And then uh, at, at almost every game or every mechanic or anything, you get to a point in which two game makers, uh, one say we should do A and the other say we could do B. And there isn't a clear right or wrong at this point, right? right. So um, either A or B could work. And then going in either direction ends up becoming the game that it is. Um, for some people, A might be the success that ends up defining what the, what, the, what the game or franchise is, and that continues to build on A for a long period of time. But there might be developers that go like, I want to see what happens if we chose B. And then those guys move over and start off their own thing, mm-hmm. building a mechanic on what that option B is. And, and it's all about that. Eventually, like any, any game design um, decision is, is that, is, going, is a decision. We stop at right, the point to exactly. go like, we could either do this or that. And exactly. depends on what we decide, it becomes a completely different game in some cases right. in either way. I, th- I, think, I think it's fun because I think for, uh, you know, one of the, one of the exercises I, I usually give starting design students if they, you know, if they end up in a consultancy call or something is I always try to, to tell them like, okay, so make me, you know, make me a simple platformer and then, uh, you know, d- make the jump. Right, just design a jump, basic jump, and that's all I want. And um, after after they're done with that task, I ask them about why they set the gravity the way they did. Yeah. Right. Uh, instead of the jump itself, and it's fun because it's a it's a question where they just kind of make an assumption for a number and then continue. But those are decisions too, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the a lot of the invisible decisions that we just sort of automatically make are decisions, and usually they come from us knowing kind of what we want to go. We're just going with earth gravity. We're just setting gravity to one. We're just like, we'll see what happens. Um, but a, a lot of very simple, straightforward choices are actually some of the most defining choices we make. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Because everything else tell, is built uh, around it. Yeah. It's one of the things I tell my students as when I uh, try to build uh, their skill set to analyze uh, games. And like, because I believe that you become a better designer if you can analyze games better. And right. like the, the, the rule of thumb I give them is that like whenever you're playing any kind of video game, at any point in time, at anything you look at, stop yourself and ask yourself why. Why is that thing like this? Or why is that thing there? I, and I tell them, um, I know this, you know, it's, this is with 1000 degrees of certainty. Any 
tiny thing in whatever game you're playing, there's a group of game developers that sat down in a meeting room or around the table or in a Burger King for hours <laughs> debating. For hours. Yes. Discussing yes. like, this should be this shade of blue or this arrow should point in this degree of direction. Anything right. that you've seen in a right. video game um, as a result of hours of deliberation of developers until they finally go like, I guess we'll do this. Or they ran out of time right. and that's what we ended up with. Um But exactly. there's there's always kinda, a reason. I kind of love this because you can t you can tell sort of the different backgrounds between us, Fauzi, from this one. Mm. Yeah. Because I'm going I'm going all the way back to like the smallest mechanic <laughs> I can mm. find as like a because I'm I was Flambeer, right? We yeah. our entire game design was on like two or three basic mechanics mm -hmm. that work together in interesting ways, and then the feeling of the button. Right. Yeah. That was for us. The, it was always the, the, the kid aesthetics, right? The mm -hmm. feeling of pressing the button, pulling the trigger. And you're talking mm -hmm. about like how, like what is on the screen, how it's communicating to the player, why yeah. it's there, what the technical limitations might have been for that wall to be there. Uh, and sure, there, there's implied there's also like the buttons. And in my yeah. thing, it's implied that there's also how the game looks. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're just saying the same thing from different <laughs> points of view, kind Absolutely. of proving what we're talking about. Absolutely. So like, you know, uh, academically, like, you know, looking at your games, Rami, I'll be like, those guys are clearly focused on making that button feel really, really good. Mm -hmm. Why? There must be a reason. Yeah. Right, so I start to yeah. think about it. Oh, that's a team of two. Okay, right. <laughs> you know, that could be one answer. Uh, um, you know, like they're trying to get to, to hammer in on this particular core experience. So, or like you know, that game is touch screen. So you know, that one uh, movement needs to matter a lot in that case. And then you know, like you start to come up with hypotheses. And this is one of the favorite things I had going into conferences early on is that I would have played the game or like um, uh, had my, my list of reasons for why. And then I meet the developer and I go like, all right, so there's no press, there's no bit around here. I have a bunch of questions. Like, you know, why did you make these calls? I think it was that. Was that right or wrong? And then like, you know, many of those are long life friends and we had a lot of these discussions. But there's always an answer to that question yes, of why right. did they do this, you know? Exactly. And that's the, that's the thing I tell my students as well, is that a lot of times I, I ask them, why did you make this decision? And most of the times, like, well, I saw that in this game. And one of the important, th like, that's not necessarily the wrong answer, but one of the important things to ask yourself is, but what problem were they trying to solve with that right. decision mm -hmm. like we, not every like basically they were looking for a solution to something do you are you trying to solve the same problem are right you, do you even can you even identify what problem do you have like you have to take it back one step further uh, and I'll, it's actually one of like the, these conversations that you're talking about about how game designers come into a room a lot of times it boils down to people saying well i saw this in this game and it didn't work but that doesn't mm. necessarily mean it won't work in our game Like right. that's something that you have to detach yourself from. They were trying to solve a different problem. And maybe because of the other systems, it's so interconnected and complicated. Maybe introducing that solution in their game uh, would have caused a different problem where that problem wouldn't exist in our game. We, uh, we, learned, that, we learned that one uh, painfully back at Vlambeer because a, a lot of my design knowledge actually is non-academic, non right? Well, it used to be non-academic. We, yeah. we just kind of learned by doing. Yeah, um, which is the best thought, way, if you ask me. Yeah. We thought the <laughs> academics were a little were a little stuck up, and the books were bullshit. <laughs> like, we're, we're not, you know. Uh, <laughs> but I'm gonna have to. I'm the gonna truth, have to the truth that is out. somewhere. No, the truth is somewhere in the middle, right? But <laughs> you know, now that I now that I'm a little more grown up, and I've like you know come to know a lot of these academics, I know that they have a different way of trying to codify the same information, yes. right? Uh, mm -hmm. Some do it through practice, some do it through theory, some do it through a mix of both, and they're all useful in different ways. Um, anyway, so uh, I wasn't I wasn't academically trained for game design, and we were making an RPG back at Flambeer, and we wanted uh, an inventory system. And we just kind of went like, wouldn't it be cool to do the inventory system like in, uh, in Diablo? Right? So you have mm -hmm. this inventory system, it's a grid, and every item has a shape, and you, you can put more stuff in the inventory if you sort of Tetris the items around, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And then like three weeks later, we canceled the project because at that point we suddenly had like scrolls of identify yes. where you could like identify items that were undefined, but you knew the shape, but the, it's a fun risk reward thing. And so we, we, were, we ended up just so much of Diablo's design turns 
turns out hinges on the shape of that inventory, mm-hmm. right? Oh, yeah. uh, because that's that's your central risk reward. That's that's the entire mm-hmm. thing. Like, am I going to bring this item? And I'm going to am I not going to bring this item? Sure, you're also fighting, but mm-hmm. that's not really the core of Diablo. The core of Diablo is getting that's a cool good. item. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're fighting so, to get the items, exactly. right? The, the fighting is not the point. That you hopefully have the space for because you're carrying other items to help you get the item. <laughs> exactly. So as soon as we cop- as soon as we copied that, we were stuck in a lot of Diablo's design decisions because they naturally flowed from that decision. Exactly. And that was not the game we w- we were trying to make. We weren't making a loot game. We just thought it would be a cool inventory to copy. Um, mm. So we made a rule that we can't refer to other games. It's a little bit harsh, <laughs> but it's a very it's a very Vlambeer way of approaching things. It's like, okay, you can describe mechanics from other games, but you can't say, like in Diablo. Uh-huh. Huh. So That's from that point on, we had to say, like, okay, so an inventory system that is grid-based that you can put items in and the items have a shape, uh, that's it. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it helped. Uh, it wasn't perfect. Uh, we still yeah. made you know similar mistakes, but it, it really helped because it also forced us to analyze why we wanted certain things. That's great. Um, you know, the fun. thing the thing is like when you when you are making a game design decision, right? You, a lot of people have this misconception. There's like you know really good game designers they just dream up a concept and then that concept just wor- works magically. Like I've just felt like imagine this and now I tried it and it works from the first time. That you know, as any person that ever made a game will tell you, that's not true in any way. Uh, but so like the one the one way for us to really know that a mechanic works is to have experienced it. We either yeah. experience it because right. we've experienced it before in another game, or we prototype it. Prototyping it could be that we kind of know where this is going, but we iterate until it until we see where we end up. Or we stumble upon something that works. In all of absolutely. these cases, you absolutely know that it works once we get there. So like, we have to have experienced it in some way, shape or another, either in your own game or through your own uh, experimentation or in another game in order for you to say this thing works with right. uh, any degree of certainty, right? I, I think the thing I always have to explain to people is people, the, the, thing, the thing people get wrong about game development is that they think that we're all very good at it, right? <laughs> but they, they think we're very good at it in the wrong way. Yeah. We're not good at it in the way that we know what to do. We just know how to get to what to do. Yeah. Right? That's the thing game developers get good at. Like it's not like we sit there, we go, okay, these mechanics we're gonna do, and then you know, we we just say we're gonna do this, we're gonna have a wall running, we're gonna do a double jump, uh, the levels are gonna go from here to here, the story's gonna go from there to there, let's do that. And then we do that, right? That's what a lot of people think game development is like. Well, the reality is kind of like, okay. So is is wall jump can, is wall jump good? Shall we try some wall, shall we just try some wall jump? But then we spent like two we spent like two months trying to figure out whether wall jump works. Um, and then we we go from there and then we try to, to figure out how to you know how to get from wall jump to something else that's fun. Uh, mm-hmm. like a lot of people think that game development comes with like sort of like a strict plan. Well, in reality, usually three months before launch, we're still being like, oh, <laughs> God, this, I'm not sure about this still. You think yes. it's going to, we have like a month and a half left. Do you think we should, should we still push on this? Yes. What happens if we cut it? If we cut it, can the, do we still have, yeah, do we have time to cut it? So we don't have time to cut it. That, that's, okay. I think, one thing that we're, we're missing. And it, it's understandable that we're missing it. But I don't know if you two have the same shared experience. But have you ever, when you were kids, did you ever design a game on the fly with your friends? Like, oh, yeah. You know, what, you yeah, know uh, when you're just in the schoolyard and you have things and you're like, okay, okay. It's like soccer, but we're going to use this ball because right. this is all we have. <laughs> and there's no nets, so we're just going to put these two things, which means we can't have a goalie because that nobody was able to score for the last five minutes. And the confidence at which you make these iterative changes on the fly while playing the game without starting over, that's the kind of thing that eventually, like because of our experience, we, we don't do as much because like we see right. the probabilities, but we see the future. When you're kids, you're like, we'll make this change and we'll adapt because we don't know what's right. Like we don't, we're not thinking beyond that. Let's one try change. this brick as a ball. 
<laughs> that lasts for one kick and you're like okay yeah, okay let's try and find the ball we i understand why there's a ball this one this one i i i play for laughs but this one actually happened in my life what, the um, break yeah when i when, when i was a kid in egypt we didn't always have a soccer ball uh so every now and then we would just in front of my house it was sort of like um um uh, our house in egypt there was sort of like this this sandy kind of road it wasn't a main street, so it was kind of the sandy road. And there was a wall, and near the wall would always be these these very beautiful round stones, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we would use those as a soccer ball if we wouldn't have a soccer ball. <laughs> so we just and they were they were they were smooth, right? They weren't sharp, no. but they were still stones, oh so they God. hurt a lot. And and some <laughs> of us would be playing on uh, would be playing barefoot, uh, so it was kind of an unfair game. <laughs> the, so. but the closest I could think of, and I have a vivid memory of this, uh, you know those like milk cartons, those plastic milk cartons? Uh, we wanted to play basketball and there was no net. So we took some of those and we propped them up and we started playing basketball with those. But nobody was able to score at any mm-hmm. point. And then like at one point, I forget, one of us was like, wait, does the ball fit? And we brought it down and we had to like squeeze and push hard for the ball to even fit. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, okay, that's why nobody was able to score for the longest time. Like, we eyeballed it. We, we like, started playing. We still had a lot of fun until someone was like, hey, that one, like, was as close as it could be, and it still didn't go in. Something's wrong. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, no, it's true. But I, I I like that. I think I was – maybe maybe we were all – I'm guessing since we all ended up in game design, we were probably very similar <laughs> in that we all made games. Like, there, we all came up with rules. Uh, for me – uh, when I was doing the chess program in high school and uh, elementary school that I talked about, the teacher taught us to come up with our own rules, right? That was yeah. part of, of how I grew up. But yeah, I was doing that before that, like coming up with like, uh, you know, uh, play worlds for Lego or like a, a little mat with like cars on it. And like suddenly it was Grand Theft Auto, right? <laughs> yes, of <laughs> you course. You know, and it, that just worked. And, you know, it's kind of sad, honestly, that you, you part of you loses that. Right, I, I remember the I remember the day where those little figurines in my hand on the mat didn't feel like Grand Theft Auto anymore. Yeah, um, and you just kind of look at them and you're like, "Wow, these were magic before, but now they're not." Um, and it took me a while to to sort of recapture that. You know that? Like no. it, it it genuinely took me until my my late twenties probably before I could just sit down. And it's it's usually because there's a kid nearby. Yes, that's <laughs> you, what I was right? going to say. When you see the magic in somebody else, it just comes back for you. Um, That's yeah. exactly my experience. Like one of my favorite things to do is to make games with my kids. Like we make board games and video games and card games together. And it's that seeing them make the decision and p- pushing forward and having the confidence that brings it back with me. We're like, okay, I'm going to stop thinking about the repercussions here and we're going to dive in and you know explore right. this together. Uh, I, I also remember, like a little bit uh, on on topic, I used to watch movies like as a kid. I loved movies like The Goonies. You know those movies where you have like these kids come together and like make makeshift things that would never really work in real life. But back then, I as a kid, it just like opens up your. Never seen it. Oh, it, it doesn't it. have to be The Goonies itself, but like it's, oh, yeah. it's that theme of of movie where a it's like a group of kids it, going on an adventure somewhere. It, exactly, and they usually have Lord some... of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> Kind of. <laughs> it's, it's close. I, I, I remember way less orcs. I, I, I genuinely so so people people refer to that genre of movie so often, and I don't think I've ever seen a movie like it. Like okay. Home Alone is the closest I can think of. Um, uh, Home Alone is close, but it's only one kid. It only has it's that. Yeah, it only has that makeshift like thing. Uh, a, a more recent one that I had recommended in a previous episode that you should watch is uh, Finding Ohana. It, that oh, one yeah. is like very Goonies like, and it, it does capture that magic. In my opinion, it's really good, especially okay. if you. I don't. I don't know if you'll appreciate it because you haven't watched a sim- similar type of movies uh, as a kid. So, but right. I, I'd be interested to f- to find out. But those movies, we loved them as kids. We they just opened up the possibilities of like the magic. I think there's one by Steven Spielberg too. Um, that came out like 10 years ago that was similar. I forget what it's called. I have to try to remember. Um, but like, okay. Stranger Things? No. Well, Ser- no. Stranger Things has a similar vibe, by the way. That is a very good oh. vibe. Yeah. Okay. It does. The, the kids that, you know, 
concoct ideas and go on adventures. Totally. Together. It does yeah. capture that childhood. Absolutely. I didn't um, watch it either. You should definitely watch <laughs> it just to see at least if you like that genre. Okay, okay. I will. I will. I will. Yeah. But I, I remember like one of those movies. I can't remember which one. Uh, the kids would not say each other's names. They would all have the same whistle. And depending on how they blew the whistle, they like they would call each other. And me and my friends were like, okay, that's what we're going to do too. And that lasted like a day because like we, we were trying to figure out which kind of sounds from the whistles would call each person. Everyone kept mixing it up at the end. They're like, you know, it's just easier to call each other by name. I don't think there's actually a, a purpose for this. But for that uh-huh. one, mo- like the, the hour before we figured out how bad it was, we were so excited and full of life and discovery. That kind of thing is like, it does leave you when you're older. And it's kind of sad. I really wish we could find a way to recapture I that. I think it's, um, right. you know, like one of the things I, uh, I tell uh, a lot of uh, like my, my design students as well, is that um, one of the things that um, uh, originates to creativity and originality a lot is that if you can, as an adult, reach back to your childlike sense of wonder. Because yes. <laughs> the sense of wonder, like for kids, for example, um, the world is a much larger, most mysterious place than they can imagine. For them, like the world is full of mystery. They don't know how it works. So they need to rely on their imagination to kind of explain how some of the things that we know how it works for them. It's just, you know, some kind of magic happens, like what happens to yeah. your tooth under the pillow or like what happens to how do how do where the babies come from? They get dropped in by birds, you know, like <laughs> uh, a, lot, a lot of the things that are completely um, reasonable and logical. And we have a scientific explanation for for kids. All of this is magical and mystery, uh, mystical. Uh, yes, and therefore, right. they, they try to fill in the blank with their uh, with their imagination as much as possible. And when and when you see adults, especially game developers, tap into that uh, sense of wonder, is when they come up with like those really crazy creative ideas. Um, right. Um, as, as I think uh, we, I once on, th- on this podcast also spoke about how Miyamoto used to look into the pipes as a kid, for example. Yes. Right. Uh, and yes. then like, he would imagine that he'd come out at a different world or how he used to imagine himself, you know, fighting in the fields uh, of Kyoto. And uh, that ended up becoming Zelda. Or, uh, uh, Keita Takahashi uh, also like, you know... Uh, he, he used to, there's a, there's a game the kids play called Tomogarashi in which like two kids are rolling a ball and then mm. Keta Takahashi reflected on his childhood and he made Katamari Damacy based on that. Yeah, oh, that's so uh, cool. So like, you know, like a lot of these things kind of based on your uh, childhood experiences and if you can tap into that sense of wonder and translate that into a game of some sort or another experience, yeah. uh, you'd end up becoming like, you can end up tapping into, you know, new creative or original ideas or something of the sort. Like uh, from uh, Osama was mentioning the, the shows that uh, he used to watch as a kid. I, I grew up watching a lot of Takeshi's Castle. Um, in mm-hmm. Arabic, it's called al Husan. If you guys uh, know that, it's like a game show um, that a lot of the kids of my age in the Middle East uh, ended up growing. It was like it's a, a lot of uh, uh, obstacle uh, courses that you need to pass through. And it's hilarious. If you guys have never watched this, I can't recommend it enough. I think no, it's still it's very stands. Good. Yeah. It still stands. <laughs> and there was like there was this one course that uh, used to call the Mamar al-Khatr or like the dangerous passageway in which like you need to pa- walk past like a very thin crease next to the wall and there's all sorts of stuff being flung at you by, by yeah. those <laughs> fun <laughs> enemies. And I used to recreate that at um, in, the, in the recess yard. So like I'll have the kids like line up and they start moving around and I have like a group of enemy kids that are throwing like water <laughs> balloons and, and like trying to like pull uh, pull stuff from under the other kids' feet until they try to reach to the end to the end line. <laughs> that, was, yep. that was a lot of fun. I think as a kid I had the dream like I would have wanted to be part of Takeshi's castle if I could. Right. Yes. I mean it's still possible. It's still possible. <laughs> you know, but you know the you know the, the the place where I find I find this most interesting is actually sci-fi. I'm I'm a huge mm-hmm. sci-fi fan, but you know, if you go back like 60 years in sci-fi writing, right, we didn't know what was on Venus, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the sci-fi books are all like dinosaurs on Venus and like <laughs> yeah, you know, people, people <laughs> in like little cloths, like basically like living like the, the early humans. Uh, yeah, like, like that, that was what we imagined. Yes. Exactly. Because we'd never been there. We couldn't go. We couldn't imagine what was there. So we just made up stuff that seemed logical based on what we thought. Mm-hmm. And then you, you kind of extrapolate from that. And, and sci-fi actually kind of gets boring, more boring <laughs> over time, because we you can see the exploration of our solar system in the type of sci-fi that we're writing. And we're kind of losing that naivete of what our 
our solar system is. Right. Martians You're changed right. from little green men to becoming humans who moved there because the Earth got destroyed or got right. polluted. So it's, yeah. it's the kind of stuff where you in sci-fi you can always kind of see where we're losing our naivete, like most, because mm. it's always writing on like, you know, now we're writing on like um, uh, genetic, um, um, everybody's writing on like genetic or, or cybernetic enhancements, right? Yeah. yeah. And like, uh, the, all the wildest stuff comes up from there, right? And then in, in, you know, 20, 30 years, maybe that's more normal and that topic will have gone away and we'll look back and we'll read that and be like, oh, we thought so many things. Flying cars, <laughs> uh, flying cars, things on Venus. But I will admit, at, same thing as a kid. Like there, there used to be on the on the research yard, there used to be this, um, this skipping thing. You, you know the ones? Yeah, kind of like yeah. a drawn thing on the ground that goes... One, two, three, four, five, yeah. six, and then three Hopscotch. and four are next to each other. Hopscotch. Yeah, Hopscotch. Sure. yeah. Awesome. That one. It's so funny when you speak English fluently, but you just realize there's entire parts of vocabulary you've never had to use. <laughs> I can't name as I can't name a single bird in English. <laughs> Why would I know what a bird is named? I've never had to name a bird. I know there's like a raven because it gets used in, in, in fantasy a lot. Yeah. Raven or chicken? Uh, that's, all that's all you need. But that's it. People go like, "Oh yeah, that's a that," and I'm like, "What? What is that?" And they're like, "It's a, it's a, it's a. What's the word? It's a robin." I'm like, "What's a robin?" They're like, "That's a robin." I'm like, "That's a bird." Yeah. <laughs> That's that bird. I'm like, oh yeah, that bird has a name. That makes sense. That is anyway, an edible chicken. <laughs> Believe me, enough spices, any bird is an edible chicken. So not until um, you've tried it, Fauzi. But, but, uh, but the uh, the the hopscotch thing, uh, I would use that as a spaceship. Me yeah. and my friends would sit in it, and and one of us would sit at the front where the tent was. And we would just pretend it was a spaceship and fly around the universe in the research yard um, <laughs> until people realized we were nerds and started annoying us. Um, but, you know, uh, the, the the fantasy of that was there. I oh, think yeah. we used to use it, actually. We played, uh, I don't know if any, like I'm Canadian, so I don't know how uh, how many other people know what curling is. I don't know how widespread it is around the world. But we used to <laughs> like, play a not that uh, on. <laughs> is that, is, 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 so look up curling if you don't know what it is. It's, it's, the one where you, it's the one where you slide tea kettles over the ice, right? <laughs> yes, exactly that. That's the best okay, way to describe one. it. And you so, use brooms to let the teacups slide faster. <laughs> oh my yes. God, curling sounds so ridiculous when explained by people who don't. <laughs> but we used to play a form of curling on those hopscotch um, like you know drawings with marbles it's like we wanted to see if you could like get the marble at uh, in a certain point and knock out other people's marbles but we just used the lines of the hopscotch and we made up our own rules and it didn't really work because our like we used to be able to capture other people's marbles so it relied on you remembering which marble was yours because they weren't color coded right. or anything like that so it's <laughs> usually it just too big. Yeah, <laughs> we didn't use bruises. It was just a marble. You need to use this that, is the, that little brush that you use for fingerprints. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> Asama, you all, came, you all came up with the most complicated version of Joe de Boule I've ever heard. I like, don't know what that is. Yeah. <laughs> it's basically exactly what you described. They just use uh, small cannonballs instead oh. of, uh, but they 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 throw or roll the ball and then try to get it as close to the goal as possible. It's basically curling with cannonballs. Oh, okay. Rami <laughs> well, I mean, doesn't know the name of a single bird, but knows ancient pirate games. <laughs> Listen, as, as soon as it's a game, I'll probably know about it. If it's not a game, no idea. Close, I'm okay. I, I don't know about this game. I have to look it up, but thank you. Curling, but, I mean, sorry, it's marbles, but with cannonballs? That sounds incredible. I got to play that. I love it. It sounds, it sounds like a lot of high stakes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we used to play a lot of marbles growing up as well, but um, uh, um, like we had those rules. Like if you win in some of the games, you get to keep your and your opponent's marbles, which, right. um, uh, which can be popular with some kids. Unpopular yep. with others. Yes. <laughs> this is one of the few things in which my, my relatively large size as a kid ended up being in, in my benefit. Like, I'm going to take these marbles. You're going to do something about it? No, I that's should, what I thought. <laughs> I, sh I should have been your friend when I was a kid. I would have had so many marbles. 
Actually, our playground was pretty much split in half with half the people refusing to play with anti, like to give up their marbles and the other half, like that's the only way they played. And I think that's kind of how like MMO servers ended up splitting up too, like the PvP versus the PvE. <laughs> Right? Love it. <laughs> so I bet you whoever designed that used to play marbles as a kid. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, th- there was those games I played, and then most of the other games involved running away from people you like. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of running. With. There's a lot of running. There's, like you play soccer, you hit somebody's window, and it's like, and <laughs> eh, it's time to run. Yeah. <laughs> in, in Egypt, you got really good at running in different directions. Yeah, so that only one, of the, one of the kids would get caught. <laughs> what I really didn't understand as a kid is that, like, why did our neighbors really flip out when our ball got caught under their car? Like, it didn't hit anything. It's under the car. I'm going there to get <laughs> it. And Have you like, seen the cars <laughs> in Egypt? There's no way that would do more damage than, like, than just how people driving (laughs) that soccer ball that soccer ball is not going to create damage to your car if your car does not have two mirrors anymore and the front bumper is sliding on the ground we are really not the difference also calling it the soccer ball was like an overstatement because that thing was a spherical object full of socks but (laughs) calling it a soccer ball a soccer ball was a major promotion (laughs) to what it actually was (laughs) oh god I hope there are new socks Socks at least. No, no. Why would you put new socks in there? Put old socks. socks. Oh god. <laughs> that, that thing had no bounce whatsoever. And if it right. hits you in the face, it's double oh, fatality god. because it's heavy. It right. hurts and it stinks. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah, there was a, there was a lot of that. There was a lot of marbles uh, growing up as a kid. There was um, biking. I mean, we biked everywhere. Like, oh, I didn't have a bike in Egypt. Uh, uh, but also the neighborhood that we were in was not very, not very good for bikes. I think yeah, too I many mean, cars, a lot of cars, not not a lot of like places to bike, mm. um, and just there wasn't anywhere to go. Okay, yeah. we, we have like when I grew up, we lived in Erodul uh, Farag, which is the fish the fish market neighborhood. So basically, mm-hmm. if you if you went one way, you smelled like fish. Uh, and it was cars everywhere. If you went the other way, it was just kind of like the same type of street for like 25 minutes. Hmm. Uh, so th- there just wasn't many places to go. Uh, there, there was enough to do there. And then later when we moved to Ma'atam in Cairo, which was uh, the other side of the country, I think we were kind of over the biking age. Yeah. So, sense. yeah. We had a couple of I mean, kids I'm still in, not in over the room. biking age now, but <laughs> I get what you mean. We only had two kids in my neighborhood that had bikes, and like those kids used to charge ten cents to yeah. give you a, to give you a spin. So like they would come up, they would come into like the the major the big parking lot close to the neighborhood, and then like they'd be there in their bikes, there. and then they start ringing their 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 bells. And like all right. the other kids come in and like you know with myself included, I go like I want to I want to ride. And I'd be like, you were um, you were fast in returning the bike last time, so I'll give it to you for five cents. And I give him five cents wow. and I take it take it for two rides around the parking lot and they give it back. It was, or like sometimes I could manage to like negotiate, obviously with a bit of haggling. I was like, I'll give you two cents <laughs> and one marble, and he was right like. On. One marble, I want three. And then we start this haggling <laughs> until I finally can get the, the bike ride for like a marble and a half or something like that. Right. I'm just curious, <laughs> if if not everyone had a bike, was that how you learned to ride a bike? By like, you know, paying someone 10 cents and like, like how, how did the kids who never rode a bike do that? Did you just figure it out? In my neighborhood, we just learned that way. Like, you know, a couple of kids will have the bikes and then they will either lend it to their friends or rent it, <laughs> give them spins or something like that. My dad okay. eventually bought bought me a bike as yeah, well. Yeah, I don't know. I was... But my mom had this rule of, Dutch. like, you're never allowed to leave the, the parking lot, which which kind of defeat the purpose. So I ended up uh, uh, trading bike rides for, for marbles as well. The cycle of life <laughs> continues. <laughs> of course. Of course. No, I was just curious about that, but yeah, the shared experiences across the world uh, with uh, with kids making up their own games and playing bikes—that's really special. Rob, said something fun. about uh, how you learned. I mean, I was Dutch. Oh, fair so enough. So I learned to—I learned to, to bike in the Netherlands, and actually, part of the reason I don't think I got a bike in Egypt is that I learned to ride in the Netherlands. So mm, I was yeah. doing things with like indicating which direction I would go, like stopping <laughs> at intersection. My mom was probably like. If he tries that here, he's dead. 
<laughs> so, and she's not wrong. Like, she's this, not wrong. It, she's not wrong. No, but the, I, I think that's always one of my favorite things about about kids play. No matter where you go, right? No matter where I've traveled around the world, the thing about kids play is that it always finds a way. Yeah. But it always finds a way, no matter what the circumstances are, no matter how how good or bad things are. Kids will always find a way to play with something, with anything, because uh, it's just there. It's there. It's the natural state of humans, I think. And we kind of, you know, we kind of teach it out of our ourselves, which is unfortunate. Yeah. Um, it's really cool to see that. That I mean, soccer obviously in in the Arab world is is huge for for kids, um, for a lot of kids. Um, most of the world. and then as well, yeah. yeah, yeah, most of the world, I guess. Um, but like, in, I, I like how in the Arab world it was on the streets everywhere. Yes, right. Um, it it makes me wonder though. This really makes me wonder. Uh, like, there weren't that many girls playing soccer with us. My sisters would play soccer with us when we were young, but yeah, exactly same for me there. actually. There's a lot of skipping know. rope I remember from my sisters. Oh, mm-hmm. skipping yeah. rope! Yeah. Skipping yeah, rope! Yeah, I saw that a scotch. lot. I need to have a Habibti on the show one time. And we need uh, to have a Habibti on the show to talk about this. Yes, yeah. uh, absolutely right. should have a, a Habibti on, but not for this episode because this episode is over. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> thank you all uh, very much for joining us. Oh, oh, oh wait, 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 wait. Yes, yes. Um, um, I have one more thing. If everything's okay, um, when we're recording, it's not entirely sure, but if everything's okay at this point, check online to see because there is a... Um, Palestine bundle in support of the, uh, the the humanitarian crisis that is happening in Palestine at, right now. Um, there is a bundle full of great video games that you can get right now on itch.io. So um, if you want to support Palestine, do check out the uh, the itch.io bundle that is available now. Any anything helps really with rebuilding their lives, their homes, and um, you know it won't bring the people that passed away back, but hopefully it will help build. Um, it will help rebuild. Uh, so go check that out on itch.io. Um, just wanted to shout that out real Absolutely. quick. Thank you for that, Rami, Alana, and everyone else who's involved in that. And uh, that's it for this week. So thank you again and salam. 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 That was the Habibis podcast for this week. I'm Osama Dorias, your host for this episode. You can find me on Twitter at Osama Dorias. My fellow Habibis were Rami Ismail, you can find on Twitter at T-H-A underscore Rami, and Fauzi Mesmar, who you can find on Twitter at Fauzi Mesmar. Send us your questions, stories, suggestions via info at thehabibis.com. Intro and outro music was provided by Malik Zubeda, and the logo was provided by Ibrahim Hamdi. The Habibis is a weekly podcast about three game developers drinking good Arab tea New episodes launching every Friday, inshallah. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcasting service or check out thehabibis.com for more information. Thank you for listening and salam alaikum.